Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. But I think electronic music... It wasn't about gender. It was about the music. And I think that was something that was really unique about it, you know. Because we didn't really we didn't really push it. We'd just turn up and do gigs and people would be like, oh, my God, you're a woman. So it would always be, like, refreshing. And then you'd have women coming to shows. You'd be like, it's so refreshing to see a woman and it's good to see you play. And I think in that respect, it was just really groundbreaking. Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in sonic arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Hello, knob twiddlers, and welcome back to another episode of Girls Twiddling Knobs. I trust you're doing well, taking care of yourself, and are ready for another fresh helping of invigorating feminist music tech discussion. Because today, I'm joined by one of the UK's most successful and prolific electronic producers, who just so happens to live down the road from me, and she's called Riz Maslin. Now, originally, Riz and I were going to be recording this episode live for the Amazing Sonics Festival. The festival's organiser, the lovely James Weaver, had arranged the whole thing and we were all excited for the live event. But two days before, I fell down the stairs and injured my coccyx. Yes, it was very painful and I'm still recovering. But to cut a long story short, we had to move this discussion onto the podcast's usual online format. But honestly, that makes no difference to you, dear listener, because it's still a fascinating chat. And I wanted to bring you this discussion with Riz because it's easy to feel tied down or boxed in as a woman in the industry. Many artists use a pseudonym to create separation between their personal and creative lives. And Riz has been releasing electronic music under multiple musical identities for the past three decades. And I love that Riz shares in this chat how she's used multiple monikers to experiment with different genres and make music in multiple contexts and never get boxed in. She also shares what it was like getting into production during the 90s in London and her new very dreamy ambient release, Stairway 13. Riz also reflects on the important qualities she thinks women bring to the field of production and why less can be more when it comes to music tech gadgets and gear. Okay, let's get into it, Knob Twiddlers. So welcome, Riz, to Girls Twiddling Knobs. It's wonderful to have you here. Oh, you're very welcome. It's, it's lovely to be part of the uh, podcast. Yeah, and I mean, this is a bit different to how we planned. We were going to do this in person, and then I fell down the stairs and injured my coccyx and just could not get myself to the festival, to the Sonics Festival, to do this live. So I'm really glad that we can do this on the podcast via Zencaster, at least. So am I. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe we could start off. Can you just tell the listeners who you are and the kind of music that you make? Okay. My name is Riz Maslin and electronic musician is probably the best way to kind of, you know, 
put it out there and I let people decide what they want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, most of the stuff that you're doing interacts with electronics in some way, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And you're based not far from me. In fact, you're based very close to me in St. Leonard's. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So what I'd love to do is maybe start at the beginning of how you got into making music in the first place and specifically how you got into making music with technology. Because I know that you've been doing this for a long time now. Yeah. Since the 90s. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So long ago. Actually, it doesn't seem that long ago. I was reminiscing about the 90s the other day. So, (laughs) yeah, well, I think I'd always been interested in music. I did a bit of classical music when I was at school. I played the recorder. I used to go to all these crazy, I guess they're like competitions. So I did a lot of that when I was in my kind of, during primary school and then some of my secondary school. And then I progressed onto the flute. And I was in the orchestra and all that, but I didn't really enjoy the idea of playing something that was written so I kind of opted out of it in the end so and then I was in a band with my sister we did we were quite an experimental band we didn't really we were more of an improv band she was the drummer and I kind of did weird things with bits of metal and found items from the street and then we we got some friends in to play bass and how old were you when you were doing that Riz? I think we were she was still at school. I probably just left school. So she was probably 17 and I was 18. And wow. it was a lot of fun. We won. We, we did some Battle of the Bands thing and we got the most innovative band, <laughs> which I thought was quite <laughs> Yeah. What do you think it was at that age that made you want to experiment so much? Because a lot of the time, for a lot of people at that age, you just want to fit in, you know? It was strange because... We'd grown up in a really small community, very rural. And yeah, I think there were elements of that that were kind of part of our lives. But we were both very much into, my sister was a huge Depeche Mode fan. Mm. So she loved all that electronic stuff. And she was into Mark Harmon. So we were into very quiet. And I was into people like the Cocteau Twins, Susie and the Banshees. So we were very much into the kind of alternative scene. So for mm. us, it seemed the most normal route to kind of go. I wished she'd stayed playing drums, but unfortunately she had a baby really young and that all changed. So, you know, yeah. things happen, you know. Which, yeah. But she she did DJ as well. So it was it was a lot of fun and we do laugh about it now. Fantastic. Okay, so you had a band with your sister. What happened next? Uh, I used to frequent a, a, a weird goth club called The Third Side, because we, by this point, me and my sister had moved to Bournemouth, of all places, because my mum had worked in a hotel. We kind of followed suit mm. and ended up having a flat together. And I bumped into this guy who looked like something out of The the Cure, and I, so I was totally drawn to him. And then I found out that he was making music using a tape machine, a live tape machine, and he said, oh, come and do some vocals for me. So I did, and we did that for a couple of years. He went to university. We did a lot of gigs. We used the tape machine live and then he would just play guitar live and then we would just, I would just like wail over the top really. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of fun and it kind of got me into thinking about using other elements within a live setup that doesn't necessarily mean you have to play instruments. And I think that was my first kind of intro to looking at using hardware on stage that isn't just about guitars and stuff like that. So Yeah. So, so how would university and then I moved to London so okay yeah so you kind of you, you stopped playing together at that point yeah I guess. yeah we went to physical university um, and how were you using the tape machine on on station was it just to play samples or was it to record things so we had yeah 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 he had a drum machine which we used to put uh-huh. all the backing tracks onto the quarter inch tape machine which is mm. hilarious when I think about it now and he would just play guitar through effects and I would just sing to effects. So it was yeah. kind of like an homage to people like The Cure, maybe Cocteau Twins, those kind of people, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was our first kind of adventure in kind of using technology as it was at that time. So mm. Yeah. And so what when whenabouts would this have been? Would this have been early nineties or uh, 
So I, I moved to London in 88, so it was probably okay. 87. Yeah. Uh, I moved literally as the whole rave scene was exploding. So I kind of arrived at the, at the right time, I think. So I didn't want to finish the band, but, you know, he needed to go to university, and I thought, well, I'll try my luck in London and see how it goes. So. Yeah. Okay, so did you move to London not really with much of a plan, just... I want to be immersed in this incredible city and meet people and make music. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah. my idea. It mm -hmm. wasn't as easy as that, as, as mm -hmm. everybody knows when they move into a mm -hmm. huge city. Because mm -hmm. Bournemouth was quite a small place and um, it was lovely and it felt very much like a security blanket. But And then suddenly to step into London where I really didn't know anybody. Yeah. You know? So I kind of, drove my little car up there with whatever belongings I had and managed to find places to sleep for a while. Somebody knew somebody and I slept on their sofas and stuff and eventually I found somewhere to rent. I rented a room from a friend. So it was a tough start, really, because I really didn't know anybody. I knew a few people. Yeah. So how did you start getting into the music scene then in London? Well, it was a weird beginning because I ended up doing like almost session vocals for really bad kind of rip-off bands. <laughs> and, I, and I felt really like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Mm. So I did it for a while. And I also worked as a house model in a, in a fashion house. He used to sell shows uh, close to Topshop. So okay. the guys would come in and I'd stand there like, a, you know. Oh, wow. The clothes horse, which was really against everything I believed in. But... <laughs> I met some incredibly nice people through working there. I met all these amazing people that were designers and people who worked, who made all the clothing. So it was a yeah. really good place for me to be and it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So then I decided that, okay, I don't want to do this weird pop shit, basically. And I don't mean to kind of put it in that way, but it wasn't really for me. So yeah. I ended up, I don't know what happened, I ended up meeting somebody who said, oh, oh, there's this guy in Dollis Hill who's looking for somebody to do some vocals or something. Come and do some stuff with him. He's doing really interesting music. He kind of does like reggae and hip hop. So I kind of went there under the, you know, under the premise that, oh, well, you know, I've got nothing to lose. And actually we really hit it off and he had a really lovely digital studio. He used a bit of analog, but he had things like an MPC and he had like a sampler and drum machines and 808s and 303s and 606. So I was kind of introduced to all of that kind of technology. And in the beginning, I was just really doing some singing for him for various bands. He'd say, oh, he's coming to do this for me. I've got this band coming in. You know, he did a lot of kind of sessions for people. So, mm. and it was great. And in the end, I decided that, oh, I asked him to show me how to use things. So I just said, you know, I quite like to use, you know, so I'd go to work and then I'd go get on the train and go to Dollars Hill after work a couple of nights in the week and just spend time in his studio. And mm -hmm. it was a really, you know, fortuitous thing for me. And at that time, because it was also a rehearsal space, a lot of really interesting bands were coming in to rehearse. Mm -hmm. And that's when I met Brian from Future Sound of London because they rented a studio on the ground floor and I got chatting to him and he told me he was stuck a humanoid and then I lost it because I was like, oh my God, you're the acid king. <laughs> <laughs> I love your stuff, you know. Being very kind of like, oh. And he was really humble and just not what I expected. So he said, oh, come down and meet Gary and you know, I'll show you our studio. And they had this tiny room, which was literally stacked full of analog synths, you know, everything you could think of that was available at that time. And I was just blown away. And the sounds that were coming out of that room just blew my head off. I'd never encountered anything like that before. Wow. It was just otherworldly. Mm. And, yeah. and they totally, I said, oh, how can I do this? So, well, you need to get this, this and this. And they gave me a list of things. So I got a bank loan. Oh, wow. Like really? I think it was like 500 pounds or something. Yeah. And I bought myself a little analog desk, an Atari, which was running Cubase, and I bought an S S1000, Akai S1000. So I just started sampling things because that's how Brian and Gary worked. And 
kind of built it up from there. And also at the same time, we had people like Mark and Diego move in as well from Four Hero. So the whole place was immersed in all these amazing musicians that were making really groundbreaking music. You know, you've got your drum and bass and then you've got the Future Sound of London. And it was just fantastic because Future Sound used to get me down every couple of weeks. Oh, we just need a vocal. Can you do this? And I'd be like, you all right. Can you just sound like a seagull? I'm like, seagull? <laughs> okay. So I'd end up sitting in the vocal booth doing all these weird sounds and they'd, they'd then go and do something with them and end up on the record. So... It was a really groundbreaking time for me because it made me think about, I don't actually have to follow any rules to make music. Mm. I can do anything if I want. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but these guys are doing it and they're doing really well. So, and then they got signed to Virgin and Four Hero took off and it was great because then it gave me that confidence to then send stuff to different labels. So I sent I sent some stuff to I think it was one of the music magazines and they put it on a demo and then through that uh, Ninja Tune got in touch. So and they said, Oh, we have this little label called Entone. Would you like to put some music out? And that's really where it all started. Wow. So yeah, it was it was it was a good time. Yeah. We were really up for things, so People always talk about luck, you know, but it's not just about luck of opportunity. It's also about luck of friendships and networks and that you just happen to kind of, you were working, you were doing session singing already. So obviously it's not like you weren't immersed in music already, but then to be given that chance to go and, you know, do some stuff at in Dollis Hill. And then it just happens to be this hotbed of creativity and they happen to be people that you um, are able to kind of have a vibe with and it sounds like they're very welcoming and very supportive is that right Riz? Oh my god it was so amazing I'd yeah. never encountered that anywhere and also because I, I said oh well, there's not many women doing this yeah and I was very naive you know and I was like well, well who is doing this and they rolled off like two names or something I think like Chemistry and Storm and maybe DJ Rat. You know, they were the only people I really knew about and they were more on the DJ scene. I knew they were making music as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, okay. And I didn't really want to play on that because even when I went to Ninja Tune, I was like, you know, it's really about the music. It's not really about the gender. Yeah. Um, and they never really was, you know, I think they understood that it was a selling point, which anyone that was in a commercial arena would realise mm-hmm. that. So for me... I kind of took it in my stride because I knew it would help rather than it being like, you know, anti feminist and that. So, yeah, I was very lucky. The Mm. people I worked with and the people that supported me, you know, were very supportive. Yeah, that's really good. I I mean, something that I'd love to talk about is, I guess, where that kind of passion slash confidence came to decide, okay, I want to do this too. And... I don't necessarily know how I'm going to do it. They've just given me a list of equipment. I'm going to go and get a bank loan. I'll get the stuff. I'll, you know, but I know that when we talked before, Riz, you said that you come from a really long line of strong, uncompromising women. Did that have something to do with it? That determination, that kind of, no, I can do this. I think so. I think so. I think particularly my grandmother, Mm -hmm. she, she was, you know, she grew up in the 30s, and as a young woman in the 30s, living in actually in India, as an Anglo-Indian woman, she wasn't allowed to do anything mm-hmm. because of the nature of how women were portrayed, and she was expected to get married and have kids, but she also wanted to learn to drive. Mm-hmm. And against her father's wishes, she secretly went off and learned to drive and turned up in the wow. car. <laughs> so, you know... Wow. I have mighty yeah. respect for her for that. And she was always really, really, like, powerful about the things. She brought her children up on her own wow. because the, the man that was – I never met my grandfather. So he disappeared long before she left. I think they came to England because he was English. And and then he, he gambled all her money because she, she came from a – they weren't poor – uh, but they had some money that she brought with her, and he just disappeared and left her with her four children. Right. And she brought them up on her own. And all of those 
bar my uncle, who I don't really know, my mum and her two sisters were exactly the same, strong women, you know, mm. very outspoken, didn't really take any shit, you know, and mm. it was just really refreshing to be around those kind of people. So, yeah, yeah, I think maybe genetically me and my sister have those genes as well. Mm, yeah so kind of going into those rooms where it's very even if it's the people inside are very friendly it's still very male dominated and there's lots of racks of synths and equipment there's still something in the you that's like no I can do this and I'm gonna do it and I'm interested so why not yeah yeah I was constantly asking questions oh oh, what's this or why don't I use that show me you know and I think you most of the people I worked with never I never felt intimidated. If anything, they were really supportive and, mm. and open and able to share their knowledge. And I think that is something that I was I embraced because I felt like they actually took me seriously. You Do you know? think that was something about the kind of genre of music that you're working in at that time? Because there are, there's so many, I mean, so many stories now recorded, like officially recorded in studies of women who've had terrible experiences in studios and the music industry in general. Was there something about that time and that type of music that meant there was a different culture, do you think, Riz? Yeah, I think so, because I'd come from another scene. And also when I was doing other things musically, I had encountered that. Mm. you know only superficially but I had encountered it of the way how women were portrayed oh mm. can you put your hands up here and um, at photographs and things like that and I'd be like I don't really feel comfortable doing that because that's not what I'm about mm-hmm. um, but I think electronic music it didn't really have any you know it wasn't about gender it was about mm. the music and I think that was something that was really unique about it you know mm. Because we didn't really, we didn't really push it. We just turn up and do gigs, and people would be like, "Oh my god, you're a woman!" <laughs> <laughs> so it would always be like refreshing. And then you'd have women coming to shows. You'd be mm. like, "It's so refreshing to see a woman, and it's good to see you play." And I think in that respect, it was just really groundbreaking for mm. the time, the scene. And I think it was very supportive of the female artists that were within that in that time so yeah so can you tell me a bit more about the first record that you made that got signed to Ninja Tunes kind of smaller label Entone Entone yeah can you tell us about that how how did you make it because obviously this was your I presume this was your first proper kind of body of work that you'd made yourself that you'd produced and I presume you'd done it with the equipment you bought with this bank loan yeah so so what happened what did you make Uh, I because I did a lot of work with Brian and Gary I'd learned a lot from them and so they Mm. would do a lot of particularly Brian he was his father worked in Scottish radio so he his dad did a load of kind of almost like Chris Watson kind of things using Mm. fan sound and created things that he Mm. kind of made at home in his his dad had a studio in his house so I learned a lot about finding sounds so I would go out into London and record all the sounds because I found it fascinating that you could use found sound sample it and then put it in your music as well as using samples from other places like television radio you know video stuff like that because that's what everybody else was doing you know it was trying to look for the places that maybe no one else had taken text from films or something because obviously everybody was using things like funky drama and all the breaks so it was looking for things that are outside of that so for mm-hmm. me it was I know I'm gonna go to the local laundrette I'm gonna I'm gonna record the woman in the laundrette and stuff like that and build track using those sounds so sample them stretch them chop them up and then use them in your sequencer um, mm. For me, that's always been a huge part of music, of how I create. And I still do that to this day. I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. now technology is so much easier. You can use your phone. I'm constantly recording stuff on my phone now. Yeah. So what were you using to record back then? What would you Um, take out into London? A mini disc. Right? Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have loads of them still. 
Mm-hmm. And if I went on any tours or anywhere, I would constantly be in the street recording everything. Yeah. I think I think I even had a Walkman that you could record on. Which right. Is yeah, like, that's true. Really I remember. Scared. Yeah. I remember having a Walkman I could record on. Yeah. I also remember, this is a little bit later, this is like 2003 or something, but I remember when I was at uni that the sort of tech department lent you out equipment and I remember they had a floppy disk camera. So it's like a digital camera that took floppy disks. So funny. And even at the time, I remember looking at it thinking, this is just weird and this is good you know in a year's time this is going to be a museum piece it's a, I think that late 90s early noughties is very funny in terms of t- the technology swapping yeah. over to digital you know that makes sense a mini disc and then a tape machine um, and then eventually I bought a, a portable DAT machine right yeah once yeah. I started making and you know, I had a bit of money which was fantastic and I used that for years so you know with a mic, and then obviously now we have all these beautiful digital mm. items that you can buy, you know. Yes. And, and remind me of the name of that record, just in case anyone wants to go and check it out, Riz. Well, Laundrophonic was basically all about sounds from a laundry. Because I used to live, when I first, I had this really amazing flat that I lived on Gloucester Place, which belonged to a friend of mine. And it was literally on Gloucester Place. It was the most exclusive address I've ever had. <laughs> and, um, it was the most incredible place to live. So literally I used to, because we didn't have a washing machine at that time, so we, I used to go to the Laundrette, and that was literally around near Baker Street. And the woman that actually uh, ran it was a complete kook. She was bonkers. I mean, I think she might have had some mental health issues, but uh-huh. you know, at that time I just found it fascinating. Yeah. And you know, you'd sit in there and she would rant about all kinds of things. She was South mm. African, so she had a really interesting accent mm. and very outspoken. So mm. it was actually always fun to go in there. So mm. and yeah. uh, and then record, you know, myself doing, you know, my washing and then my drying. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so that was the record where you you were signed, and what happened then with with your career? I mean, did you stay on that label? Yeah, up yeah. until two thousand. So the last record was La Prochaine Fois. So that was the last one I did with them. So mm. yeah, I was with them probably eight years or something, mm. probably around that time. So then. We did an album, uh, 15 Levels of Magnification, and then I got to tour it. So that was amazing because the record did really well. Mm-hmm. And so it gave, I mean, these were the days when you could go on tour to yes. the United States. Yeah. It was a lot easier wow. than it is now. And, yeah. And it was, it was like I'd never experienced anything like it in my life. It was like one big holiday for me I, I loved it people say that they hate touring I loved touring <laughs> it was an opportunity to go and visit places you've never been to before mm-hmm. meet the people that bought your record mm-hmm. you know and go on tour with all these other amazing musicians who are on the same label and it was like one big family it was just bonkers the whole thing was just like from day one to when you got we called it the tour bubble because you you'd be on a bus you know, a big, like, rock and roll tour bus. You'd sleep on the bus. And, you know, you just hang out with these people for, you know, a month, a month and a half. Yeah. And you just tour, you know, one end of the States or you do a horseshoe, do, like, East Coast and then West Coast. And it was fantastic. It was, I have to say, it's one of the best times of my life. I loved it. It was so oh. much fun. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And, um, I mean, I know that from some people I know, <laughs> touring I think it's when when it becomes just that is your life you know that that the the friends I've known who are musicians where they're basically always on the road Mm. I can understand why that can get quite old but but I totally hear what you're saying like it would just be such a big adventure I made so many amazing friends I met Mm. so many amazing people so many amazing musicians who I went back and worked with years later and it just gave me the opportunity to kind of see the world through different eyes rather than just being in a room, you know, four walls and a computer. Mm. It made, it was inspirational for me because I got to meet just incredibly generous, lovely people. So 
Riz, all this time, this is music that you're putting out as your pseudonym Neotropic. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd love to talk to you about the fact that you have a couple of different monikers. And so we have, as well as Neotropic, can you tell us the other monikers that you have gone so, under? at the same time, I had another moniker called Small Fish with Spine, uh-huh. which I released an album and a couple of twelves on uh, Oxygen Music Works, who were in New York. So, and that was fantastic. This just gave me an opportunity to put music out that was slightly different to what... I didn't want to kind of... I wanted to have the opportunity to make other kinds of music, mm-hmm. even though it's still in the electronic scene, but maybe a bit more breakbeat, a bit more kind of maybe techno-influenced. Somebody approached me who'd set up a label in the US and said, would I like to put some music out? And I said, oh, yeah, so let's do it under a different name because it just means it's easier and there's no conflict with labels and stuff. So, And it just made it gave me the opportunity to make other kinds of music. So that was that. And then, I mean... More recently, I've been doing I've been doing under another name, which is Lee Demar. I think it just allows me to do things that are slightly different to what people may associate me with by Neotropic. So, yeah, and can you just describe so people are kind of clear why you might want to distinguish those? What kind of um, genre would you put Neotropic in if you had to? I think down tempo. I mean, yeah. trip hop at the time was the label they liked to use. So it's much more down tempo, maybe slightly ambient. I think the last record I did was a lot more live because I used a lot of live musicians, but I think that was just the progression of it, you know. So it had that element of more laid back. But there were elements that were kind of also influenced by things like breaks and drum and bass, particularly on. Mr. Brubaker's Strawberry Alarm Clock. So I think it just allowed me to maybe explore other avenues that weren't necessarily what I... It's funny because I would say, oh, no, that's not a Neotropic song, that's something else. And I still do that now Mm. because I know I have a... Maybe it's more of a sound thing, but like everything, it does progress. It doesn't just stay in, like, ambience. But I think there there was an element of ambience that kind of ran through all the Neotropic stuff. Yeah. I think it still has. Yeah. I mean, it has kind of grown. But I think it just allows you to be able to explore without feeling tied in that, you know, people are going to expect a certain thing, maybe from that sound. People are not necessarily buy into the other things. And also I wanted to do some more experimental stuff as well, which is what I've been doing in in my last release. So, mm. you know, yeah. so I think because I'd come from an actual... I'd written uh, an installation piece, but I I didn't really know what to do with it because it was purely just for a space. It was a spatial Mm -hmm. thing. And then I realised that actually it would be quite nice to put it out. Mm -hmm. And then fortunately someone approached me and really liked it and I went back and did some work on it and then they released it. So it was perfect vehicle. So that release is called Stairway 13. Yeah. And that was released this year, wasn't it, Riz? Yeah, on Manor Records, yeah. We're going to play a little, just a few, you know, like 30 seconds or so, one of the tracks. Describe some of the process of making this record and also well actually first could you tell us why did you decide to put this out as leader mar instead of say neotropic because you're saying you know neotropic does have some ambient kind of tones yeah. to to that moniker but what why did you need leader mar as a its own thing to stand stand on on its own as I think it's a lot, you know, I think my music's always had a bit of a dark element, but I think this is also more about a personal journey of sorts for me, which I think a lot of my music is about my own personal journeys. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, originally it was an installation piece, which was an immersive installation piece, so people, people would come into a very small room 
it would allow you to just sit in there for 10 minutes or you could leave. And it was a 40 minute piece with just an image on the wall. Mm-hmm. And it was really just born out of wanting to create something that really wasn't about having to make your mind up what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, and I didn't want to make something that was purely about, I want to use the word entertainment because that doesn't seem right, but it was also very stripped back as well. And I think that's also about creating something that you can become immersive in it. Yeah. But also you can step out of it as well. You don't necessarily have to sit through and listen to the end. It also allowed me to kind of look at a more, I guess it's almost like a classical approach because I use a lot of voices, although I did use a lot of electronics. And I also use a lot of sounds that I kind of processed. And there were a few things that I'd taken that were also pertinent to me at that time that I've kind of interwoven into it. So it's such a difficult thing to kind of, explain and I just felt it wasn't a neotropic record I just knew it wasn't and it'd been sitting on the shelf for a couple of years and I really didn't know what to do with it I really loved it as a piece but it wasn't right for Slowcraft or whoever I'd been putting music out with Mm. so I decided that something and just something came along and Mana just approached me and I said oh I have this and I I had been quite familiar with the music they put out and it is very specific. A lot of it is very, you know, it's very avant. It's a bit more experimental. And I really wanted to try, you know, see if I, you know, it would work within their kind of, you know, music that they actually released. So it was perfect, really. And they, they were so amazing to work with. They were just such a lovely record label and I, I can't thank them enough for being so supportive and they allowed me to work with a really good friend of mine who's a graphic artist who made the most incredible artwork so yes the artwork's great and I mean and the the record is great I love it and what I love about it one of the things I really love about it is how it seems to kind of I don't know it's 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 quite similar to actually what you described of like it is very immersive but you can step in and out of it and it does feel in a sound way like you're kind of melting into some kind of liquid, if you know what I mean. You know, like some something's kind of dissolving or, or you're watching a very murky pond and things kind of rise to the top and oh, then lovely, sort of though. disappear again. That's yes, that, that's how it comes that. across to me, yeah. Because it there feels is. like there's a lot of very quite opaque textures, but then there'll be something that kind of comes through that's got a lot more clarity. Yeah, I, I guess that's the best way I can describe it. It's like you're looking into quite kind of murky water and then every now and then something rises to the top and you can see it a bit clearly, but then it sinks back down again. Yeah, I think that's a really lovely uh, description. I love that. Because <laughs> the, the things do come in that are quite abrasive and then they go yeah. away. And, yeah, so that's... And I did love going back and actually reworking it. So it was really lovely to go back and say, oh. Can you talk a bit about how you make something that is quite... Because it a lot of it's quite minimal as in it's it's not I'm sure it's not minimal in terms of just how much you're stacking up in texture and the process behind it but as a listener sometimes it's just very long held notes for example especially say the first track right at the beginning there are there are bits where it kind of moves more and there's more going on but how do you go about working on something that is so minimal and what's the process behind that because a lot of the time people are working with four four loops and you know the usual stuff but this must be very different it's funny I have a even though I rebelled against it when I was younger classical music is very much about that because classical music is a movement so you're moving from the beginning she's quite quiet and a build and I've always loved the structure of how particularly certain composers who are, I mean, Arvo Parr is one of my favourite. I love his work. He uses a lot of voices, but it's also quite minimal as well. And he uses a lot of long notes, drones. Mm. And I love that, but it is so powerful. And it's also about spaces. And I wrote the space because, I read the music because the space I was in would allow that to kind of sit in yes. the room. So mm. I think you look at the environment, and I knew that the environment was quite specific, and I just thought, 
it's got to work in a way that it's not going to be too busy. Because I think mm. people, some people, when people come into a room, if it's just like banging, you know, four, four beats, people will just leave. You know, some <laughs> yeah. people just, I mean, some people won't, some people won't. Mm. But I wanted to create something that people would actually go, oh, what's that? Oh, I'll go in and have a look. But it's, it is quite difficult to write things that are minimal because I do, you know, I look at things sometimes and I'll, I'll, I'll write something and I'll go, and I'll leave it and I'll come back and then I'll strip things away from it and actually something else reveals itself at that time. Mm, and yeah. that's what I love about it is that sometimes take things out just to really get the clarity of the other things that are there. Because sometimes it all becomes a bit, you can build and build and build loads of other kind of melodies or different textures and it all becomes quite a lot to take in. Mm. I think anyone listening right now, this is a really good tip from Riz. Take things out and yeah. see if it's really necessary. I think that was actually some advice that someone who I, when I was doing my MA in Sonic Arts, someone who was teaching me composition, like sound composition, they said exactly that. They said, take as much away as you can until when you take something away, it's, it's actually missing because most of the time there's too much in there. So that's, I think that's a really good piece of advice for anyone listening, for sure. Because it I mean, is so tempting it? to just keep pouring oh, more stuff in. When actually we're trying to cover up the fact that it's maybe not a very interesting idea, you know. <laughs> that's where or, you learn. I think yeah. that's the beauty of being a, a composer is that you, you know, you learn as you grow. And at the beginning, I would just be throwing everything at it, the kitchen sink. And yeah. just see, you know, see what works. And then as I've got older and also really began to analyse other composers and how powerful, it can just be like a, a weird drone that's created by a, a double bass or a cello. I'm really a big fan of film composition mm -hmm. and how it is used within creating atmosphere and it's often the ridiculous things like just a weird little piano note, just playing one note mm. and how powerful that can be. So I was inspired by that kind of stuff, you know, just going in and, and listening to things and going, wow. And then I'd be then doing all this research because I'd be like shazamming the composer and then I'd go and listen to all their work because, you know, often these composers aren't that well known. They're just because mm. they do film music. So it's been really interesting. You know, there's a lot of really interesting classical sort of musicians who are from places like you know Reykjavik Iceland they seem to have a real sense of that there and I think because of their landscape hmm. it kind of has an impact on how they write their music which is often mm -hmm. quite stark and so people like Ben Frost and people like Olaf Benissoni now who is a classical music musician are very much people that I kind of am inspired by so yeah. you know yeah and thinking about the the sort of gear that you were using to make Stairway 13 is there a piece of equipment or maybe it's even a piece of software that you're using that sticks out as something that you really enjoyed using on this record I think like everything I do process a lot of the sounds mm -hmm. so whether it be through an effect or I'll just I'll process it and then I'll maybe take it out and then put it back in. It's also things like volume and, you know, EQ is another good thing. I've, I mean, I'm really a big fan of kind of taking all the, the mids out and seeing what it sounds like. Mm. I've always been really interested in process and it could even go through a guitar pedal or I've got a lot of guitar pedals. And I even borrowed some really strange kind of synths from a friend of mine that were kind of homemade and that would only do one thing, but then you put that in and then process it. So, mm. and even using things like uh, Ebo, electric guitar, mm -hmm. so just pulling in things that I have in my studio that maybe I don't necessarily use, but thinking of interesting ways how I can make a sound from it without using it in the traditional way. Yeah, yeah. So you're really kind of, yeah, like you say, processing it, extracting new textures from it, adding things in and kind of distorting it from its original form. Yeah, and I've always really loved doing that. You know, yeah. I think it's 
because often you'll get the most incredible sounds by either seeing it through some really horrible effect, but it <laughs> actually works, you know, yeah. distortion and things like that. I mean, Aphex Twin used to do a thing where he would put things on a boombox, and I've done this as well, and he would record it. He would turn it right up loud so it was really distorted and then record that. So using things like really old school kind of like tape machines, you know, and distorting, you know, turning them so full full volume, and then you'll get this really crunchy. Sorry. There's tips and, tricks and tips that you get from doing things, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I actually stood outside a building once, and there was the air conditioning or the air con, and it was the most amazing sound, and I had to record it. So things like that, I'm walking on the street, you know, I'll hear something and I'll just go and record it. And then you take it home and then it'll be sitting in your phone and then, oh, I remember that sound. So I've got a, like a, a bit of a kind of um, a loaded question in a way, Riz. But, <laughs> you know, we talked a bit about your approach and also your career. Do you think that when women produce music, they have a different approach? What do you think women bring to this field that may be unique, beneficial, I think we do. I think in general, we have a different approach to our male counterparts. I think mm. in in the way we think, in the way we see things. I'm a very emotional person, and I have met some. You know, I'm not saying that all men are unemotional, but they're far less likely to actually express them. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who are, you know, female friends who are creatives and are not afraid to kind of express that through their work. And I think it's really important. Um, I think it's great. I think it's great that women should be able to be themselves and not be dictated to by our male counterparts. And I don't think that really happens. The only other times I've experienced really sexist comments haven't been from my male counterparts. Mm-hmm. They've been people outside of it. You know, I hate to say it, but a lot of sound engineers, as in like live sound engineers, mm-hmm. are often old school, who don't really take you seriously. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I had it a couple of weeks ago. And right. he was an old guy. And I'm thinking, I thought I'd got over this. But yeah, I made some comment about the mix. And he said, oh, well, you know, when people are in the room, I said, yeah, no, I've taken that into account. But even then, he still didn't get it right. Because I have a recording of it. And it was just like, he was just trying to, belittle me because he was a man and he knew what he was doing but I was like so I didn't really engage I just went oh okay and I just left Mm -hmm. it at that that's his issue but it's like you know I think we're much more in touch with possibly our emotions we're not so led by I mean who isn't a gearhead I'm not saying that that but I'm not going to fawn over everything that comes in, although I do see things. I'm like, what's that? And then I realise how much it is. Like, yeah, I think there can be a lot of safety in gear. You know, I think it's something that's very concrete. Like, you can own all the gear, but do you have good ideas? You know, and there's there's a lot of safety in saying, well, because I've got this, this, and this, that means I'm a producer. Or because I've got this, this, and this, that means I know what I'm talking about. And so I do think that for a long time, production has fallen into that trap. Producers have fallen into that trap. And I hope that that is something that women are now bringing to the field is allowing all of us through through being a little bit more kind of emotionally open, just because we've been socialised to be, rightly or wrongly. But hopefully, and, and with podcasts like Girls Twilling Knobs and, you know, lots of other things too, to just open up production and music technology to be more than that because it has been more than that but what gets talked about the most and those markers of whether you know what you're talking about or not often Mm. come down to gear oh it's totally yeah yeah but it's a safety net because it's just a a really easy way to kind of look like you know what you're doing when in reality that doesn't mean that you actually make better music or you know I started off with very little and the Mm. thing is I, I got to work with that and it is hard because you do go into people's studios and you're like, they've got so much gear. Yeah. yeah. And you're, like, you're actually kind of going, I don't know those. And actually, and then I go home and I think, well, I've got enough. I don't need any mm. more. There are things I quite like to have, but I can't yeah. afford them. So I've got to be realistic. So what's your setup now, Riz? Um, I use Ableton Live. 
I did Cubase and I went to Logic. I tried a few other pieces of software which I didn't like. And then somebody introduced me to Ableton and I just loved it. Mm. It's a really easy piece of software. And I, you know, the thing is you can you can get a, a cheap version of it. Anybody who's starting out, I love it because you've got two pages. There are so many amazing YouTube videos. You know, whenever I get stuck now, I'm just like, okay, I need to do it. Oh, yeah, right. Isn't that so amazing? I love it. I mean, because I remember when I was first learning, you know, to use Pro Tools, that's what I first learned on. I use Ableton as well now. When I was first learning to use Pro Tools, there was none of that. You know, again, this is back in the early early noughties. YouTube didn't exist. So it's amazing now that you can just search stuff. It's incredible. Reading a manual is so boring. Yes. This is so dry. At least... There are met really cool people who do mm. their own little. I think there's a really good reason guy I use because I use reason as well because I loved reason. I always mm. loved reason. I just went in and did something every day and I was like, that is so cool. And I used it immediately. And I was like, oh, this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So, because you get a bit, you know, you don't really always have a lot of time to do loads of kind of studying and research. Mm. So it only happens yeah. when you kind of need to do, you need to create a sound that you particularly want. And, mm. and it was like, Literally within 10 minutes, I knew what I was doing. So it was mm-hmm. just so accessible. And I think for anybody now, it's all at your fingertips. Mm. And yeah. you don't need heaps of money either. So you've got, so obviously you've got a computer, you've got Ableton. Do you have any hardware that you use, Riz? I do have bits and pieces. I mean, I've been, I, it's such a difficult, because I do everything mainly in the computer now, which is really, yeah. you know, I, I miss, I mean, I have like, you know, an interface, audio interface. I do have a little Behringer desk, mm-hmm. but I tend not to do that as much. But I have other instruments that I've started to use, and over the last sort of 10 years, I've used them a lot. And recently, I, a friend of mine had no room for all his synths, so I've managed to bring them here, and I've been using them now. Oh, so I've wow. got a chain and a, a really old, can't the other one now, but some really lovely analog synths. Oh, and it's lovely. really made me look at what wonderful things they are. Mm. I mean, they are a bit limited, mm-hmm. but what you can do with them. But they have this warmth about them that you just can't get. Mm. Just, mm-hmm. you know. And there, there is, it is nice to be able to make music outside of a computer, isn't it? You know, like just to kind of feel and have that relationship with an instrument rather than be all kind of boxed into your screen. I, I think... I, I like working both ways and I and so many people that come on the podcast myself included actually have a very stripped back setup I think there's this big myth that you know anyone that's professionally making music ha- has to have a home studio that's just filled to the rafters with gear and racks and and that's just not the case and I, and I know that a lot of people listen to the podcast and it's really reassuring for them that there's a lot of guests that come on and say no I, I literally have a computer I have an audio interface I have a couple of things that sometimes I plug in and that is it you know and so many things are available now that have yeah. kind of been based on the old analogs like I think I think Roland or who is it does it does these like little boutique boxes now that yeah. create things like the 303, you know, all yeah. the kind of analog synths that we're all very familiar with. Yeah. And it's that you think, and they cost like a couple of hundred quid, mm, you know. Yeah. And I think they're brilliant. Yeah. And, and then a lot of them are developing stuff, and I just think it's fantastic. More and of that. There was actually a really good perspective on this that I came across. Is someone, I can't remember their full handle on Instagram, it's Elijah. They were actually, he was actually speaking at Sonic's festival as well. It's got the Yellow Squares Instagram and it's all about creative process music. And there's one, and I'm going to misquote it here. I'm going to try and correct it later on. But where he's saying art is when you make something with what you've got, something like that. Like, yeah, art is not about sourcing every single perfect tool and piece of gear in order to make this perfect masterpiece it's about making something amazing with just what you've got in front of you that is art it's not something where you're you're constantly splashing loads of cash at it and I think that often needs to be talked about more in production it really is about the ideas you know and when you have good ideas you'll find a way to make it happen yeah I mean are you familiar with teenage engineering no the teenage engineering are these musicians 
they kind of build these little modules. They're fantastic. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of modular synths. You know, you get these beautiful modular synths now that you can yeah. build into a suitcase. Yeah. Go and check out Andrew Huang. Huang. Andrew H-U-A-N-G, I think his surname is. So teenage engineering is these little tiny things that create. Mm-hmm. They're not super cheap, uh-huh. but they're beautiful. Little machines that can do amazing things. And... It's become this whole, I love it. I just tap into their YouTube channels every now and then, and I just love the sounds it's created with these little little uh, mm. creations that they've built. And you can, you can buy kits and stuff to build stuff, and things like that are yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. See, I, I, I was like, I really wanted to invest in more hardware i actually ended up getting a lyra 8 synth so it's apparently it's kind of designed so that it's super, like very very intuitive um oh, and, wow. it, and it means that when you're playing it you can you can hardly ever recreate what you do because it's just basically oscillators that then modulate off each other and so it becomes very awesome. I, I think you'd really like actually thinking about it's stairway 13 awesome. and they're not that was 500 and something pounds so they're not you know they're not cheap but they're not going to bankrupt you necessarily you could save up there are amazing apps you can buy now i mean yeah. uh able to release their little app last week which i haven't got yet i think it's 4.99 mm-hmm. which you can do on your phone i mean That's it's great. not i mean i've read a few reviews and it's not brilliant but it is quite good if you just wanted to do you had yeah. a thought you just wanted to do something which i love yeah and i think also if you're someone that's never used any if you've never used any recording software, that would be a great way to get started. And just, yeah. you know, because there will be people listening to this right now who haven't started necessarily. And just downloading an app, um, that's great yeah. that Ableton's got an app. Obviously, GarageBand has an app. There's other apps too. And um, and th- and it's just about get, starting with what you can, what you've got, and building from there. You so. can do amazing things with apps now. I mean, there are yeah. lots of things you can find for free. I just saw something yesterday. It was it's it's almost like a vocoder, but okay. it, they have a free version. You can't do loads with it. I think it's called yeah. Envoy or Envoice, which is free. Okay. There is also um, Spitfire Audio uh-huh. doing lots of free um, plugins. Yeah. So if you're you're a bit stuck and you can't afford lots of fancy plugins, yeah. there are plenty of people like that. Mm. I really like Spitfire Audio because they've got the, a lot of their sounds are beautifully recorded. So mm, yes, yeah. Abbey Road and, yeah. and and they are very lush sounding. So mm. I downloaded a few things the other day and they were amazing. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think you don't have to have pots of money, and if yeah. you if you've got good creative ideas, you can make fantastic mm. music. Yeah. Well, yeah. just sort of while we're wrapping up, Riz, what I would like to well. One of the final things I'd like to chat about briefly is something I know people worry about when they have a couple of different musical identities is whether that's going to confuse people, you know, and there may be people listening and thinking, well, I would love to have a couple of different musical identities, go like release different things under different names, but will that dilute the the traction I could have or will that confuse people what's your take on that as someone who does have different musical identities I've never had an um it's never held me back I think it depends on what you want if you just want to be known for one moniker you know then that's great if not you know you might have a collaboration in which I do collaborate with quite a lot of people and we do do things under different names because it's a collaboration of other musicians Mm -hmm. so I think it just gives you an opportunity to maybe explore other ways of making music. I think in the beginning I did start, when I started to collaborate when I moved here, and I started collaborating with a lot of people, we set up a couple of really interesting improvised bands and stuff, and so we've kind of used that as a way of just being able to create music, but without, you know, reliant, being reliant on what we do as individuals. Mm. So there is that, but I think you should never feel afraid of, exploring other creative avenues and if you Mm. wish to do that within your own just one name that's fine if you don't don't be afraid I think you know do what you feel is right you know and would you ever release anything under your name Riz Maslin 
Uh, yeah, I think I, well, I do when I'm a composer. So I've, okay. I've done a few yeah. films, so it often comes under with my name. So yes. that is probably the only place I have done that when I've been commissioned to do things for specific mm. film or theatre. So, yeah, mm. which I have got a few things that I've done. So Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, just finally, what's coming up for you over the next few months? Are you working uh, on something new? Are yeah. you? Well, I, I work with a really interesting filmmaker. So she's just trying to, we've done a lot of films together already and that will come to, but with anything like any feature film, it takes for ages to kind of get any, you know, it takes a long time to get it to be properly funded and stuff. But mm-hmm. I think she's almost there. I've been working on a musical Oh, wow. It's about Anglo-Indians. So it's a real departure from what I do. I'm working with another musician who is an amazing jazz musician. So it's very different writing for musical theatre. And it's a project I've worked on a long time. We've done lots of kind of showcases and it's had a lot. It's kind of the story's changed quite a lot. So next week I'm going to go and do some more work with them. And then I've just done another project called Silent Disco with a theatre company. Uh-huh. Um, so we did an R&D, and, but they want to now look at moving that forward and maybe taking it to things like um, Latitude, because it's a dance piece, but it's a very immersive dance piece because it's in headphones. Wow. So, yeah, so lots of things. Mm-hmm. And, and then I'm in this band which has just been an absolute ball they're cool and we've been doing loads of gigs and we've got a single coming out in a few weeks oh wow well it it sounds like you're very busy and lots of very cool projects coming up so I'm looking forward to seeing all of them come to fruition thank you so much Riz for coming on the podcast um I my last question promise it's my last is (laughs) if you had to give any advice to any young women or women starting out or coming back to music and music technology in particular, what would it be? Be true to who you are. Don't feel like you have to be like everybody else. It's important that you remain true to yourself. You know, I think that's what makes people special. Mm. You know, And you don't need loads of money and you don't need loads of gear because if you've got a brilliant idea, just go out there and make it. Yeah, that's what I say. And the thing is, you've got so many amazing platforms now to put your music out there. Yeah. You don't even need a record label, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Just be loud. Yeah, that's mine. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Riz. It was really great to chat with you. Thank you for thank coming you. on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so there were so many great ideas and pieces of insight that Riz shared in this episode, but I just want to highlight a couple that stood out to me. I loved how Riz spoke about coming from a lineage of strong, determined women and how this has shaped her own confidence in music and beyond. And even if you don't feel like there's a confidence streak in your own bloodline or you just don't know much about your family tree, I think it's worth reflecting on how the way we tell our own story can really shape how much resilience and grit we believe we have and dare to show. Riz holds it to be true that she comes from a long line of strong women. If that's not quite where you're at yourself, how might things feel different if you started embracing that your female ancestors were pretty badass and standing with you too? I also really appreciate Riz sharing how she's actually had some really positive experiences in music, particularly from her male electronic music peers. She was able to learn bits about recording and production here and there thanks to her own curiosity and the generosity of others. Very often we hear about misogyny and discrimination in music, but there are lots of wonderful relationships and collaborations that exist there too. I also really appreciated hearing how Riz has released music under multiple artistic identities. As Riz's experience shows, it can be a great way to explore different genres, create music for a variety of creative contexts and experiment too. Remember that it's totally up to you how many alter egos, monikers and artistic identities you have in your music and there's absolutely no need to be boxed into one mode. It's your music, it's your choice. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Riz, I highly recommend you check out her music, including her latest release, Stairway 13, which she's released under her moniker, Lida Ma. You'll find it linked here in the episode show notes.
Now, in next week's episode, we're getting a little more technical because I'll be talking you through everything you need to know about side chaining. It's a term you'll often find used in production and mixing and usually with relation to compression. But what is it? How does it work? And when should you use it? I'll reveal all in next week's episode. But till then, take care and I'll catch you here soon. Girls Twiddling Knobs is hosted and produced by me, Isabel Anderson, with production support from Jade Bailey. The show notes are compiled by Francesca O'Connor, and this is a female DIY musician production. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, And you know someone else who would love it too. Be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls' twiddling knobs love.